So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll be reading again 1 through verse 4. So again, it's Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 4. Hear now God's inerrant and spoken word. Verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer before we jump into the text. Our gracious Father, oh how marvelous and how wonderful are the works of your hands. And what a privilege it is that the one who created all things with the spoken word speaks to us today through the word. Bless this time now as your word is preached and as your word is received so that in hearing your truth we may understand and in understanding we may believe and in believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience and that to your glory. It's in the precious name of your beloved Son we pray. Amen. Now, what I want for us to do as we begin is briefly review some of the main points we covered last week as much of what we'll uh, be studying today is predicated and really is a continuation of our previous lesson from last week. In studying the content and the context of Hebrews, we established that the main overarching theme of this epistle, that golden thread that weaves and holds this whole book together is the theme of the supremacy of Christ. That Christ, the Son, is categorically different. He's exclusively distinct and notably unique and in all manners rightly set apart compared to all others. That He's not only the true and better prophet, but the final prophet. He's not only the true and better priest, but the final priest. He's not only the true and better king, but the final king and the sovereign ruler of all things. Verses 1 and 2 communicates that God spoke. If you remember, he spoke in two phases. First, at various times and in various ways through the prophets, And second, in the greater and the more excellent way, by his Son. Mind you, this is not to say that the prophets of old were somehow false or untrue in what they were communicating, but that there existed a profound difference between the word of God spoken through the lips of men compared to the word of God spoken through the lips of God himself. In other words... The contrast that we saw last week between the prophets and the Son wasn't necessarily in the veracity of what was being spoken, 
but the means in which the word was communicated and delivered. Furthermore, we learned about the surety of God's word through the Son. Specifically, two reasons for why the Son can make good on his word. First, because he's the appointed heir of all things, and second, because he's the divine creator of all things, meaning that because he's the heir and because he's the creator of all things, all things are his by right. Because he's the heir and because he's the creator of all things, all things are his to freely give. So that every pledge, every vow, every word, every promise that's spoken by the word, or rather by the Son of God, can be taken with the stamp of guarantee. So that when he says to us, when he says to you, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, you can believe it. When he says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I shall give you rest, you can take hold of that promise. And when he says to you, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, you can trust his word. Why? 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 Because it's all his to give. So that every word that he speaks can be considered not only as true, not only as sincere, not only as beautiful and attractive and sweet, not only as right, but trustworthy. With all that being said, in studying the supremacy of Christ as the sure and final revelation of God last week, today... In verses 3 and 4, we'll be examining the proofs or the qualifications of the Son's superiority. And we'll do this by studying three specific categories or uh, three specific qualifications, which will also serve as our outline for today. So I know some of you like uh, to jot down notes and write things down. So if you want to jot the outline down, here it is. The supremacy of the Son is qualified by, first, by his person, second, by his work, and lastly, third, by his status. Again, it's his person, his work, and his status. First, the son's superiority is qualified by his person. Turning our attention again now to verse 3, we read that the Son of God, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Here we're given two distinct descriptions in relation to the person of the Son. First, that the Son is the brightness of God's glory. And second, that He's the express image of His person, or as some of your translation might say, His nature. Now what does that even mean? Now I went ahead and translated this portion of text in my study as I typically do before I prepare uh, a message And the way that I translated this might help shed some light on what's being said here. It's it's a little bit choppier, so it might help. But this is what I came up with. This is how I translated this verse. I wrote, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact nature 
of God's nature. Now, if you're like me, and if you're hearing this for the first time and seeing this, you might be thinking to yourself, this sounds like Trinitarian language. This, this has a Trinitarian lingo, ring to it, to which I would then tell you you're absolutely right. These two descriptions placed side by side, they serve the same purpose as they both affirm the same truth. That the Son of God, who is the brightness of God's glory, is the same Son of God who embodies the exact same nature, the same imprint, the same makeup of God's nature. That the Son who is the radiance, the effulgence of God's glory, the Son who is the express image of God, is God, in other words. And the reason for why the writer of Hebrews places these two distinct points side by side, it's not by happenstance, but it was the intentional purpose of the writer as these two points really go to uh, exist to serve one another and, and protect one another. That the Son is not only the heir of all things, but also the creator of all things. That He Himself is God that the Son is not only the radiance of God's glory, but is Himself God. That the Son, though distinct from the Father in their economy, which is their role in the work of redemption, is nonetheless the same ontologically, meaning they're the same nature. They're the same substance. They're one in essence. Now let's take a closer look at what this means and unpack this a little further. We see here first that the sun, he's described to be the brightness, the radiance of God's glory. He's the luminous manifestation of, of God's glory. Now this phrase, this verse, as one might perhaps expect, Uh, This verse has been the source of a great many heresies. That Jesus is nothing more than the mere brightness of God. That he's some sort of created or some kind of secondary thing made by God, from God. That he's just some kind of a a, a shiny, some kind of glittery essence, that uh, some kind of glittery residue that we see from the light that is to be God. That he's but a mere reflection of God, just like how the moon doesn't emit its own light, but is a reflection of the sun's light. At face value, This verse might not seem like much as it's quite easy to read over it. But what we find here in this portion is actually profound. Its detailed truths require our full attentions. Again, historically, this verse has been the constant battleground in the fight for orthodoxy. And none more well recognized and esteemed than the 4th century patristic Athanasius of Alexandria, and you might know this name. I know many of you do. Do Athanasius of Alexandria. During a time where Arianism ran rampant and was championed as true, the belief that Jesus was a created being, he was created by God, 
Athanasius, on the other hand, stood his ground and dedicated and risked his life. He was exiled even five times to defend that the Son, because he is the radiance of God's glory, is God. That the Son, being the brilliance of God's glory, didn't necessitate him to be less than, but that it actually served to to highlight the divinity of the Son. That being the radiance, the effulgence of God's glory, served to emphasize the unity of the Son to the Father. In one of his letters defending this very position, defending the deity of Christ, he wrote this, and I've got to read this slow because it's kind of hard for me to read this, but he writes this, Being the brightness of light eternal, certainly the Son is himself eternal. For as the light exists always, it is evident that the brightness must exist always as well. For it is by the fact of its shining and the existence of light is perceived, and there cannot be light that does not give light. If there is sun, then there is sunlight, there is day. If there is none of these things, it is quite impossible for there to be sun. God is light eternal, never beginning nor ceasing. The brightness then lies before him eternally and is with him without beginning and ever begotten, shining in his eternal presence. Much to the thanks of Athanasius in defending the deity of of Christ, this gave precedence to the Nicene Creed where we get the line, we believe, and you guys, this will probably sound familiar to you, we believe in one God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And we read this, God from God, light from light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Church, This is why we sing, as we just did this past Advent season, true God of true God, light from light, eternal. Oh, come, let us adore Him. We don't sing this because it sounds good. I know it sounds good. It has a nice ring to it. But we sing this because it's true. Why? Because it's impossible to separate the experience of looking at the brightness of the light from seeing the light. The brilliance of the light is the light. In other words, to see the Son is to see the Father. To see the glory of God is to see God. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. This isn't some kind of Athanasian way of thinking too. It's not. But it's a thoroughly biblical one. We see this clearly in John 14. Your your minds might be jumping there now. John 14, we read here that Philip says to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And what does Jesus say to him? What does he say? Jesus says to Philip, he says, Have I been with you so long 
yet you have not known me, Philip? And he says, he who has seen me has seen who? The Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. To say that Jesus is merely the radiance of God, that he's nothing less and nothing more, is not only wrong, but it's dangerously wrong. It's a slippery slope. Just as the Son represents the Father, it is the radiance of God that represents the glory of God. The radiance of the glory is the very same thing as the glory that it's radiating. Which is to say that the Son, in being the radiance of God's glory, is not a thing that is other than God, representing God, but is God representing God because He's God. Now, I probably lost some of you. I almost lost myself there. Am I making sense? The point is that God the Son is God. The Son being the radiance and the brilliance of God's glory in this act of revelation isn't revealing anything else but Himself to be God. And this is very much the same message that we find in the next point of the Son being the express image Uh, the exact imprint of God's person or nature. The Greek word that we find used here, and it's obvious what word we get from or get in our English language, but the word that's used here is character, character, where we get our word character. Very obvious. This word, back in antiquity, it refers to a stamp or an imprint made with a die or a seal to be used on something like a coin. And just like how a coin would have an imprint of a ruler's face, in very much the same way, Jesus bears the imprint of God. This is what Paul meant in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image, the imprint of the invisible God. So that in beholding the person of God the Son, we behold the person of God the Father. Now, on a side note, side note, as I was randomly thinking about uh, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue this week, I was thinking perhaps one of the reasons for why God had commanded his people to not make images uh, for themselves, carved images in the likeness of anything in heaven or the likeness of God is perhaps because he's reserved that right for the Son. Maybe. I don't know. It just came to me. The writer of Hebrews, in describing the Son to be the brilliance and the exact imprint of God's nature, is using Trinitarian language to demonstrate the unity, the oneness, and the sameness of the Son to the Father. Though distinct, we clearly see here in the person of the Son that he is one in nature and one in essence with God the Father. And because the Son is himself God, this then necessitates and qualifies him to be superior above all things, which is our first point. Moving on to our second point, the supremacy of Christ qualified through the work of the Son. 
The supremacy of Christ qualified now through the work of the Son. We continue to read in verse 3, who, talking about the Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his Son or his person, and we read, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I want to first begin by bringing your attentions to the, to the tense in which the, the work of Christ is being done in what has been done. Uh, we read here that the Son, in the here and the now, right now, is actively upholding all things by the, by the word of his power. And that he had, in the perfect past tense, by himself purged our sins. Now, in that same theme of God's word from last week, we continue to see that we not only worship a God who is not silent, but we also worship a God who is not passive. We worship a God who not only speaks to us, but we worship the one and true God who also upholds all things by the word of his power. Just as he spoke all things into existence, He, at this very moment, speaks all things into persistence. Mind you, uh, this isn't like Atlas, the the Greek god. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's the really strong-looking guy who's carrying the world upon his, his shoulders. You might know this. But this is not what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate here. But rather, what he is saying And what he means in what he is saying is that the Son of God is actively and intentionally upholding all things in a managerial way, in a sovereign governing way. He's upholding all things in a a divine sense. It's an action that communicates the continual organization and, and the carrying forth of a created order to a specific end, which means this. It means that every nanoparticle, every microbe, every virus, every created thing from the smallest to the greatest of beings, of animals, to the most distant Milky Way, to the most complex galaxies we can ever imagine or see, all things are being purposefully upheld and carried out by the Son for its appointed end, and that for the glory of God. And the means, the means, the, the vehicle by which He's doing all this is by the Word, by the Word of His power. Now the phrase, the Word of His power, is a, it's a Hebraism It's a phrase, it's a saying that was often used by the Jewish people in recognizing and appointing that the attribute, the key attribute of God's word spoken is power. That God's word is, is, as we read here in the Greek, uh, dunameos is exactly as it sounds like. It's, It's dynamite. It's dynamic. It's big, it's profound, it's powerful. It it moves and obeys and it carries out all that he commands. And the very same word that spoke all things into existence is the very same divine word 
that speaks all things into persistence. God's words, friends, is categorically different. Unlike ours, God's words are powerful. It moves, comes alive. And it doesn't take much to prove the difference between God and and us. If you ever noticed, uh, our existence doesn't depend upon our word, nor our command, or nor do we command our bodies to to function and, and exist. We're never telling our bodies, in other words, we're never commanding our hearts to beat. I'm not standing up here preaching to you and telling my my heart subconsciously beat, 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 pump, pump, pump the blood. If that was my responsibility, I would be dead. I wouldn't be here. And and this is a silly example and probably a bad one. But this to say that our words have no persisting power like the Son of God. God's word, again, is categorically different, different. And the difference between our words and God's words is that Not only did he form our hearts with his words spoken, but he can speak a simple word of a command, beat to our hearts, and it goes, it beats, it follows him, it obeys his word, it continues to persist. Now that is power. Beloved, this is truly an amazing thought. That the Son of God upholds all things by the word of his power. That he, even as a babe who once laid helpless in the manger in Bethlehem, was at that very moment upholding the very molecules of the straw upon which he laid. Isn't that amazing? That the Son of God, even while hanging upon Calvary's tree, actively upheld each and every fiber of that cross that he was nailed to so that he can accomplish his work of redemption for you to save sinners like you and like me. Friends, this is a staggering and mind-numbing and humbling thought. Now, in the world of theology, the The Son upholding all things by the word of His power is often referred to as the providence of God. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith defines providence like this. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Said in another way, when we consider the active work of the Son in upholding all things, all things persist, all things that persist, it beckons us and it compels us to look Back to the Son. The Son, in upholding all things to persist, it's not just a basic fact. It's not just because it is. But it's a glorious and marvelous and staggering reality. It's an active and magnificent truth 
that necessitates and thrusts us into worship. Every moment we're alive, every breath that we take is a reminder for us to look back at the Son of God. So that when we look, even at the most simplest of things, like a blade of grass, we don't just say, wow, that's grass. We're not just to look at it, but as we did this past Lord's Supper, we're to look past it and we're to see the magnificence and the glory of God. This is what John Calvin meant when he wrote that there is not one blade of grass. There is not one color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. So that when we consider even the rising of the sun, we don't simply think to ourselves that the sun has risen, but that God had appointed it to rise. So that when we consider even the rain as it has been falling, it's been pouring, it's not just because it's raining, but that the Son of God who upholds all things had appointed each and every raindrop to land in the exact place where he was well pleased with it falling. It's not by accident. It's not by chance. It isn't because it just is. But all things exist and persist by the word of his power. I love what Puritan John Flavel wrote. He writes this, The providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. This to say, friends, everything points backwards to God. Following in verse 3, we read that the Son had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In contrast to the continual sovereign act of the Son in upholding all things, we simultaneously see the definitive, the final, and the once and for all priestly act of Christ in the work of purging sins. Now you might be thinking, uh, why, didn't, why didn't the writer of Hebrews, why didn't he just begin this whole section with the priestly work of Christ in purging sins and then, and then use that to then highlight the deity of Christ? Isn't the whole point of this, of this section uh, the supremacy of Christ after all? Doesn't it make more sense to start off with the priest of Christ to highlight the deity of Christ? Why, why did he do it in this order and not the other way around? And the reason for why the author of Hebrews writes about the priestly work of Christ after he first establishes the divine person and nature of the Son is because the priestly work of Christ is predicated upon the divinity of Christ. You see that? In other words, the supremacy of Christ as the true and final priest is built upon the foundation that is the supremacy of Christ as God. Because it's only by God in flesh, Christ the Son, who can, as the final priest of God, sufficiently lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. It's the Son of God alone who can accomplish the work of atonement. And oh, what a humbling thought it is to know that God the Son, by His own volition, by His own will, came in the form of a man to purge our sins. 
Beloved, we must never get accustomed or used to the fact that Christ came to die for you. This is not a little thing. Sin is not a little thing. It's not something that we just do here or there. But we clearly see in Romans that it's a great power. It's a great evil that moves the heart. It's a wicked thing that influences the will and and takes hold of the mind. It's not something that we're taught, but it's something that we just do because it's so infected every fiber in our body since birth. It's as Paul writes in Ephesians that we're all born as children of wrath. We're We're all born defective in sin. Yet again, what we find here in verse three is great hope. That the Son of God didn't just leave us in this condition. He didn't leave us in our sins. But we read right here that Christ the Son had once and for all purged our sins. Now if you're a believer today, you might be thinking, what does this exactly mean for me as a Christian? What does it mean for us as Christians when we read something like this? Quickly turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and look at verse 11 with me. Just a few pages forward. Hebrews 10, verse 11. We read here very similarly. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to the Son of God, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And we read this, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Which means this. Because God the Son had by Himself purged our sins, He has once and for all perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, He has already perfected those who are being perfected. Now this is a very strange thing to think about. It just sounds strange. Yet what we have here is a magnificent and profound truth that the Son of God through his accomplished work of redeeming sinners, has in result perfected a group of people who are being perfected. So that if you placed your faith and trust in the Lord, you have within you at this very moment the Spirit of God who is moving and forming and changing and molding and shaping your hearts and your values, your emotions, your priorities and your affections in such a way that rather than desiring the things of this world, you start desiring the things of God. Your inclinations begins to change. Rather than being inclined to sin and for sin, you're inclined to cling to Christ. And so what Hebrews 10 is telling us right here is that when Christ gave himself once and for all in defeating sin as the perfect sacrifice, he at that very moment perfected all people, past, present, future, all people who are in Him by faith. 
And the strange yet profound thing that we're given here is that the Son has already perfected those who are being conformed to His image. Now what in the world does that mean? It means that in the eyes of God, when He looks at you, you right now, being renewed, being perfected, being sanctified day by day, He doesn't see you as imperfect but he sees you as perfect and already completed in Christ because of Christ. And so there's this strange aspect in the Christian life where we're almost trying to catch up to who we already are in Christ. And oh, how this should come as great news to you, Christian. Oh, how it should come as a source of great encouragement to know that you are made perfect in the Son of God. That your sins have been already perfect. It has been, uh, rather, it has been perfectly purged. That the work of atonement and redemption have all been paid, have all been accomplished in the Son of God. So that rather than being left to your own devices, to your own efforts, trying to do this and trying to do that, trying to do your best and, and claw your way into heaven, instead of trying to perfect yourself, which you can never do, you can point to Christ and say that He has accomplished it, that He has done it, that He stands on my behalf. You can point to Christ and confidently see, say, as we have just sung, and when before the throne, I stand in Him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin although it had left a crimson stain. Our God, the Son of God, He washed it white as snow. Oh, what great assurance this is. Oh, what great news this is for those of you trusting in Christ. Following in verse 3, that after the Son had purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. You see that in verse 3? Now, what's the significance of Jesus sitting down? What's the, what's the link here? What's the connection here between Jesus accomplishing the purification of sins to him now sitting down? And it wasn't because he was tired. What we have here at the end of verse 3 is what I would characterize as the zenith, the climax of this portion of text. If we were to take a step back and do a simple grammatical survey of verse 3, we would see here that there's one main clause with everything else surrounding it, supporting it, and, and highlighting and, and pointing to that one main point. And the main clause is this. It's that he, the subject, that he, Christ the Son, sat down. Meaning we can rearrange and read verse 3 like this. He, being the radiance of God's glory, sat down at the right hand of God. Or, he being the exact representation of God's nature and substance, sat down at the right hand of God. Or, he, upholding all things by the power of his word, sat down at the right hand of God. Or, 
He, having made and accomplished the purification of sins, sat down at the right hand of God. But again, going back to the original question at hand, what what does it mean? What's the connection here between the Son of God making purification for sins and sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high? Now, whenever there's a mention of a priest or a a sacrifice of some sort alongside of a seat or a chair, this should always stop us in our tracks. The reason being, and if you're a student of the Old Testament uh, in temple worship as the audience of Hebrews would have been, uh, you would have immediately recognized, you would have immediately caught on to the fact that there's no such thing as a seat or a chair in the temple of Jerusalem. And that's because in Old Testament worship, priests, as we have read in Hebrews chapter 10, priests, as you know, were constantly and actively offering up sacrifices day and night, and night and day without end for the purification of God's people. In other words, there existed no such thing as a chair, not because there wasn't any time to sit down, which is partly true, but because, and here's the point, but because the work of purification, of atonement, had not yet been completed. It had not yet been accomplished. There was no chair in the temple because there was no use for it. Why sit down when the pressing reality and the consistent power of sin had not been dealt with yet? Why sit down when atonement hadn't been accomplished yet? Why sit down when sins had not been satisfactorily paid for. So why the chair? Why did the Son of God, in verse 3, why did He sit down? It's because Christ the Son paid it all. As the great high priest, in, in offering up His own infinitely holy and precious blood, as the once and for all sacrifice for sins, He satisfactorily paid the price for sins. For the Son of God to sit down was to signify, to communicate, and to proclaim that the work of of atonement has been done and accomplished in Him. That it's finished. Oh, how clear it is, friends, that the work of Christ the active work of Christ in upholding all things by the power, or rather by the word of His power, and the accomplished work of purging sins point to the supremacy of the Son of God. And now finally, last point, and I'm going to promise I'll be very quick with this. Our last point, the status of the Son. We read in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, I'm not going to unpack this too much as we're running out of time here, but there is one thing that I want to quickly mention for our last point regarding the qualification of the status of the Son. We have to recognize that no angel, not even the most exalted angel, would even dare to sit in God's presence let alone sit at God's right hand. But again, the Son, He's not anything else. He's not an angel, but He's God. The place where 
Christ the Son sits is the highest in the universe, and it's His by right. It's His by the qualification of who He is in His person, in His work, in His status as the Son of God. It's His by right as the prophet through whom God speaks. It's, it's His by right as the priest by whom sinners come to God. And it's His by right as the King who reigns on high. Unbelievers, I want to quickly address you. Unbelievers who are here with us tonight, I thank the Lord that He's brought you out here so that you might hear His voice through His Word, so that I might share with you a brief message and and yet a warning that if you have never come to Christ, that it is to this Christ that you have never come. That if your heart is cold towards Christ, it is toward this Christ that you are cold. And if you continue to deny and reject the Christ who accomplished the work of redemption on your behalf to save dead and dying sinners such as yourselves, it is to this Christ that you are denying and rejecting. And oh, how I plead with you to come to him tonight. Oh, how I plead with you to follow him as your Lord and Savior. After all, after all that we've just studied, is he not good? Is he not dependable? Is he not trustworthy? Is he not qualified to be trustworthy? If he's drawing you to himself this day, and if he's convicting you of your sins this day, oh, I plead with you, do not deny Do not deny him. Do not reject him and do not delay. For today is the day of repentance. Brothers and sisters, what a glorious thing it is. It is a glorious thing to not only recognize, to not only believe, but to know with full unwavering assurance that the Son who is not silent is the same God who has done away with our sins. That the same God who is heir and creator of all things is the same God who upholds all things by the word of his power. Even the very faith that allows us to look to him and to take hold of him. Oh, what a savior we have in Christ, do we not, friends? What a wonderful, merciful savior we have. A precious redeemer and friend. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we have often turned aside away from your brilliance and your beauty to the dark and foolish things of this world. That we have often desired after the things which so injure us. So we do now pray that by the Spirit, you would remind us that we are made righteous through the righteousness of another. That we are made perfect in in and through the perfect Son of God, who we now recognize is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's to the glory of the Father, in the name of the Son, and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen.